Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman, recording from New York. I'm Margot Nykirk, also recording from New York. Eli Koaz in Tel Aviv. And Michael Kopler, recording from Ottawa. Now, Michael, were you a candidate for uh, Canadian uh, elections? Were you running in a specific riding? Or? Eli, that was supposed to be private. I can't believe that you, you just let everybody know about my ambition to be a Canadian. I'm so politician. sorry, yeah. but you disappointed the Green Party of Canada by not making the, the <laughs> House of Commons for the next government, but uh, we'll yes, forgive uh, you for that. A devastating failure on my part. By the way, how come nobody invites me to give my version of Shalom and Welcome to Israel Policy Pod? You have Shani on and she gets to do a Shalom. I'm on, I don't get to do it. Let's hear yours. Shalom and Welcome to Israel Policy Pod. That was good. So let's get to this week's topic. Over the weekend, we saw not only the final lead up to the Canadian elections, but a significant development in our own American presidential election as it relates to our favorite topic, Israel. Two Democratic presidential candidates made comments that hinted at their willingness to potentially condition aid to Israel if Israel took steps that were moving away from a potential two-state solution. Uh, We had Elizabeth Warren saying that it's the official policy of the United States to support a two-state solution, and if Israel is moving in the opposite direction, then everything is on the table. That was in response to a question about conditioning aid. And Pete Buttigieg saying that the aid is a leverage to guide Israel in the right direction and that if Israel follows through on these threats of annexation, that he is committed to ensuring that the U.S. is not footing the bill for that. So I want to start, Michael, when you're not working in the Canadian capital, you're working in our own capital city of Washington, D.C. What does this pretend for future American policy on this issue. So what's interesting is that you have Warren and Buttigieg who come from opposite ends of the democratic spectrum. Warren is certainly one of the two leading progressive candidates in the race. And Buttigieg, I would argue, is one of the two leading moderate candidates in the race. And they both seem to have arrived at the same conclusion which is that U.S. security assistance to Israel should be or perhaps can be used in a way to change Israeli behavior. Now, whether we ever get to this point is a different question altogether, because despite what we've seen from the Trump administration when it comes to aid to the West Bank and Gaza, uh, or (laughs) what we've seen from the Trump administration when it comes to uh, security assistance to Ukraine— This is not something that generally an American president can do on his own or her own. Obviously, Congress has a large say in this. And at the moment, I haven't really detected anything but fringe support within Congress for conditioning security assistance to Israel. But the fact that you have Democratic presidential candidates, both of whom are top tier candidates and and both of whom represent different constituencies, bringing this up suggests that it's something that Israel needs to really for the first time be concerned about. And what's interesting is that neither Warren nor Buttigieg brought this up in a way that suggests it's a fait accompli or something they're looking to do. They both explicitly tied it to Israeli policy with regard to two states. And that is an opening for Israel to nudge things back in the right direction, as Buttigieg said, if it doesn't want to run afoul of 
somebody who may be the next Democratic president. Even if this is something that generally falls outside the purview of the powers of the president, both of these candidates that we're talking about seem to have been intentionally vague in the way that they phrased their prospective policy. Are there things that the president could do that would, if not actually cutting aid or conditioning aid, make life uncomfortable for Israel? I mean, the Congress legislates the aid, but you have since the the 90s, these 10-year memoranda of understanding that sort of give Israel a sense of guarantee or security that they will receive aid for a period going a decade out. So, for example, could they just leave that to be legislated year to year and let Israel fall to the whims of the political mood of the day? So they could do that, although there's a current bill in Congress that would memorialize the 10-year MOU as, as legislation. So that makes it a little more difficult to open it up from year to year. I also think that the, the vagueness here from Warren and Buttigieg may be for two reasons. Reason one may be that neither of them actually wants to condition security assistance to Israel, but they also don't want to give Israel a green light to do anything it wants in the West Bank. And so holding this up as an extremely vague threat may be a way to nudge Israel back in a different direction without ever having to actually go down this road. Part of it is, as you point out, the vagueness is because it's unclear to almost everybody what conditioning aid would look like, because it's not that easy to tease it out. For starters, if it's going to be the the formulation that people have used in the past, this is something that, for instance, Bernie Sanders has talked about, has been to try and figure out what it is that Israel is, is spending on the occupation of the West Bank, and then reduce aid by that amount. So first of all, you've got to determine whether American security assistance is being used as part of the occupation of the West Bank. And that is far easier said than done. Uh, And then you have to determine how much money is being used in the occupation of the West Bank, also far easier said than done. And then you have to determine if things are actually in service of occupation of the West Bank or in service of Israel's security. So, you know, is, is Iron Dome in service of Israeli control of Gaza's borders because it helps to enforce the blockade? Or is Iron Dome purely defensive that prevents or deters uh, Hamas terrorism and that prevents large numbers of Israeli civilian casualties? That's probably one of the easier ones to answer. There, there, you know, to my mind, that's certainly about protecting Israeli civilians. There, there are examples that are that are a lot harder. So. How this would be carried out is entirely up. So, Michael, there have been attempts to delineate what USAID to Israel has been used for, quote unquote, bad purposes versus good purposes. I mean, there is a invocation of the Leahy law, I think, under the Obama administration, trying to examine whether uh, aid to Israel had been used in extrajudicial killings and torture. There was also a bill out there, you probably know more about this, that was trying to examine if aid to Israel was being used for the detention of Palestinian children. How have those attempts to examine U.S. assistance to Israel panned out? So the bill that you're talking about looking at Israeli detention of Palestinian children, it's a bill that's sponsored by Congresswoman McCollum. It has very little support in Congress, partially because 
again, this is an issue that's difficult to determine. If a, if a jail cell holds a, a Palestinian teenager one day and then holds a Hamas potential suicide bomber the next day, how do you decide what that cell is being used for? Second, that bill is based on a, a UN report from, I believe, 2013 that the UN itself has largely repudi- repudiated because concerns that were raised in it have been addressed by Israel. So that bill is, is, I think, unlikely to go anywhere. And on things like the Leahy Law, certainly this is not my area of expertise, but I've been told by a lot of people that when taking the Leahy Law and applying it to Israel, Israel almost certainly will not run afoul of it, largely because Israel has a very institutionalized JAG Corps and legal bureaucracy even within the IDF. And whenever there are allegations of abuses, the IDF does a pretty good job by international standards of investigating those abuses. So most people don't think the Leahy Law is going to be is going to be a problem. Can you just explain also for our listeners what the Leahy Law is? We're throwing around all this technical language. Sure. So the Leahy Law, it's a, a law of, uh, in Congress that prohibits the State Department, the Defense Department, uh, the U.S. more widely from providing military assistance to foreign militaries that violate human rights. And then it goes into, you know, allegations of human rights violations and whether those allegations are investigated in proper manner and and how they're resolved. So, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that go into it, but I'm relatively confident from discussions with people that Israel would pass any lady law vetting. Michael, I just want to take it back to when you were talking about differentiating aid use in terms of the West Bank and the occupied territories versus security purposes like dealing with Iron Dome and with Hezbollah and Syria and Iran. If this were to go forward, could we find ourselves in a situation where it's not only where cutting aid not only backfires Israeli security purposes, but also U.S. interests in general in the Middle East? Absolutely. And this is another reason why. I think that the conditioning aid discussion, while of course now it's coming front and center, is not something that either Warren or Buttigieg likely want to actually carry out. So separate from what Israel is doing in the West Bank, Israel is an extremely important defense and intelligence ally of the United States. And anything that is done to condition security assistance to Israel will downgrade that relationship. And it's a relationship that the U.S. has relied on pretty heavily. Now, that isn't to say that Israel should always be given an absolute blank check to do anything and everything that it wants, but there absolutely is a balance of interests here that makes this discussion far more complicated than people who advocate conditioning aid make it seem. And there is also the political angle that if Israel were to have its aid reduced by the United States and all of a sudden you saw Israeli casualties because there isn't enough money for Iron Dome batteries or because there is fighting on the northern border and and Israel doesn't have proper equipment or enough armor for its tanks. That is something that is going to land very hard politically here in the U.S. where Israel is popular and is seen as an ally. So, you know, there are political considerations here as well beyond the question of whether this is smart policy, which I don't think it is. Now, you know, there's also, to, to go back to something that Evan had asked before that, uh, that I haven't answered yet, there are other options here that may not be conditioning security assistance. There are other things that a president could do. And 
you know, Warren's formulation was interesting because she said everything is on the table, but she didn't specifically mention aid. And that can look like different things. That could perhaps look like recognizing a Palestinian state. Perhaps that could look like withholding diplomatic assistance in the UN. Perhaps that could look like establishing an embassy to the Palestinians. It can, it can be lots of, lots of different things. So I think that you know, right now this conversation is so vague and so ambiguous that there's no real way of knowing what Warren or Buttigieg or Sanders actually envisions. And there's certainly no good way of knowing, even if you knew what they envisioned, how it would be carried out. But the main takeaway here should be that everybody running for president, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, who have talked about this issue, have explicitly tied it to progress toward two states or regression away from two states. And so this is actually something that is very easy for Israel to cut off at the pass. All it has to do is not go ahead and annex the West Bank, um, not expand settlement construction. Nobody is saying so far that Israel has to fully withdraw from the West Bank and create a Palestinian state tomorrow or else U.S. security assistance is going to be conditioned. And I don't think that we'll ever see somebody who says that. This really seems to be about sending a message to Israel that says, do no further harm. And that should be something that is easy for an Israeli government to do. I think that's right, Michael. I would just maybe differentiate a bit between Buttigieg's comments and those of Warren and Sanders. I feel that Warren and Sanders, they're a bit more proactive in terms of conditioning this aid, kind of using it as a way to, I mean, from their comments at least, to push Israel toward like two states and toward in that direction almost immediately. And we have no idea when they talk about to curb settlement expansion, which settlements they're, they're talking about. But Buttigieg, it seemed, at least from his comments, that he was talking more if Israel were to annex the West Bank, then certainly we'd have to consider that. So kind of that moderate progressive divide kind of coming out. Now, do you expect the front runner, uh, at least still at this point, former Vice President Biden, to touch this issue? Or do you think he's just going to do everything he can to steer, steer clear? My guess is that he'll try to steer clear this this is something that um, he actually embraced in the early 80s, back when there was a lot of tension between Israel and the U.S. over all sorts of things, over Israel's attempt to prevent U.S. sales of AWACS aircraft to Saudi Arabia. There was tension over the Israeli strike on the O.C. Rock uh, nuclear reactor in Iraq. There was a lot of tension in the early days of the Reagan administration between Reagan and Begin. And Biden actually touched on this issue back in the early 80s. But I don't know that he's that he's raised it since, and I'd, I'd be surprised. Again, it's important to remember that right now, the only assistance that Israel receives from the U.S. is security assistance. There is no more economic assistance. So, for instance, when President George H.W. Bush conditioned loan guarantees to Israel on no further settlement expansion back in the early 90s, that was economic aid. And you know that's something that in a lot of ways is easier to touch. Security assistance given that it helps avoid civilian casualties, not only on the Israeli side, but on the Palestinian side, because lower Israeli casualty numbers mean that Israel feels less of a need to undertake ground invasions of places like Gaza or uh, Palestinian cities in the West Bank. Conditioning assistance that leads to lower casualty numbers on both sides, and that helps Israel retain its 
qualitative military edge in the Middle East, these are policies that are very popular politically and have wide support on both the Republican and Democratic sides. So I think that very few candidates are going to are going to rush rush into this uh, rush into this issue because it's politically tricky. And I think the ones that do are going to be purposely vague about it, as we've seen from uh, certainly from Warren and Buttigieg. Just to jump in for a second, Eli had laid out how Buttigieg's comments, uh, from his perception, were distinct from Warren and Sanders. And putting Sanders aside for a second, I actually found Buttigieg's comments to not be that different from Warren's in terms of substance, to the extent that there was substance, because as we've all said, they were fairly vague. And I think that it's significant that you have someone who, as you've correctly identified, Eli, falls in the more centrist spectrum of the Democratic Party, and you have someone who would be identified more with the left end of the party, and they're both supporting what would seem to be policies that fall within the same bucket. And Michael, you had mentioned how previously this had been at the fringes of the party. So this is something that could really end up moving more and more into the mainstream. Yeah, and Buttigieg, this is actually the second time he's brought it up. He brought it up a few months ago. And I don't remember what his specific comments were. I think he used. I, I think he used the same turn of phrase. I think he also said we we're not going to foot the bill for annexation. That like whole footing the bill, like we don't want to pay specifically for this policy. However, you end up delineating right. it if it's even possible. Right, and in that case, he did specifically tie to annexation. In this instance, he didn't specifically tie to annexation. So I'm not sure. Again, you know, we this is kind of. Talmudic parsing of things that candidates say on the stump, you know, in, in response to questions that are shouted at them. So I'm not sure how much, if anything, you know, we, sh- we should read into what their policy specifics are on this issue, given the very limited comments that we have from them. But this time he didn't seem to tie specifically to annexation. He did, spe- but I think he did specify annexation this time. I think that's what we're, I think we're kind of confusing yeah, ourselves you, you here. Know, you Eli, you're right. He This one, the exact wording of what he said is that if there's follow through on these threats of annexation, I'm committed to ensuring that the U.S. is not footing the bill for that. So both times it was about annexation. And that's why I did differentiate yeah, so between were, Warren, because Warren yeah. said that withholding yep. aid to pressure Israel into curbing its West Bank settlement enterprise is on the table. So that's kind of a differentiation that I think is like important to note. Hang on, the footing the bill quote was definitely from the last time he said it. Is that the same quote from when he said it last Friday? I think I think he used the same turn of phrase. I know that he used that phrase, footing the bill, when he made these comments a couple of months ago. But the one last Friday, that, that was at the University of Chicago. Yeah. That, that was where he, he also said, we're not going to foot the bill for annexation. It was a quote that we read out at the beginning of the episode. So it's interesting to see that this seems to be his way of framing it. Like, it seems to me almost like he he has a way of talking about it, whether or not we agree with it, or it's smart policy, or it's even feasible are are separate questions. But there's a level of consistency between these two comments that he's made. Which, at a minimum, really should demonstrate to whoever is the next prime minister of Israel, that, you know, when you have a leading moderate candidate in this race, um, somebody who has a military background, who is talking about conditioning aid to Israel and specifically tying it to annexation, 
that perhaps annexation is not a great idea. So in June, I have the comment now, what he said in June, it's, he said, and if Prime Minister Netanyahu makes good on his promise to annex West Bank settlements, he should know that President Buttigieg would take steps to ensure that American taxpayers won't help foot the bill. So that's his, those were his comments in June. And what we just mentioned were his comments just a couple of days ago. So very, very similar and not, no major changes. Yeah, and, and I think that Michael is correct here in, in saying that if he is following through on the same exact theme of, of not footing the bill, whatever the exact contours of that would look like, then that should be alarming to officials in Jerusalem. Although when we say that it's easy for Israel to avoid this direction, if the central mission of the next Israeli government, if it ends up being a right-wing government, and I'm talking about, you know, it could be very far in the future. This could be after Israel's fourth or fifth election in the next uh, 12 months. But if we have a right-wing government over there, then and their, their mission is, is annexation, are they going to abandon their reason for sitting in government just for the sake of this military aid from the United States? I mean, it's clearly it's a critical point of support for the Israeli military, but Israel also has an indigenous defense industry. They can't produce certain things. They don't make their own like combat aircraft, for example. I mean, there are certainly people in Israel who think that they shouldn't be taking money from the United States, and that's not people on the left. Right. Uh, you know, we've seen over the last few years this continuing struggle between the security establishment that seems to want one set of policies and politicians on the far right that seem to want a different set of policies. And you know, Netanyahu generally seems, uh, up until recently at least, to kind of be in the middle and holding the line. The same way that if the reports are accurate, the security establishment stepped in and prevented Netanyahu from actually annexing the Jordan Valley before the September election. The reporting is that he was going to announce that it was formally being annexed and instead uh, after a revolt from the IDF chief of staff and the head of the Shin Bet, he decided to announce that he would do it following the election. My guess would be that in this case, it, it, you have something similar where the heads of the security establishment will not think that West Bank annexation comes anywhere close to being worth the cost in security assistance from the U.S. But the Netanyahu of today is a different guy from the Netanyahu of three years ago, five years ago, and 10 years ago. So there's there's really no way of knowing. And, you, and you're correct, Evan, to point out that there are folks in Israel on the right who have already been talking about weaning Israel off of U.S. security assistance, not because they want to go ahead and annex anything, but because they don't want to let the U.S. have any leverage over Israel at all. It's also one of the reasons that the idea of a U.S.-Israel defense treaty is actually pretty unpopular inside of Israeli security circles, um, including on the right. So there, I think there are, there are a bunch of elements here, right? There are people who are going to say that the security assistance simply doesn't matter. Israel can live without it. And there are people who think that security assistance should be, um, should be downgraded anyway, just so that Israel has more freedom of action to maneuver. And you can certainly see the scenario in which those two positions come together even if only one of them is a pro-annexation position, that those two come together and that somehow Israel decides that security assistance from the U.S. is not worth the price. 
Now, of course, a right-wing government isn't the only option in the future, at least a, a far right government. We know that the other day, Benny Gantz was handed the mandate to form the next government in Israel. How do we think he's reading these signals from the United States and from the presidential hopefuls in the Democratic Party about the fate of U.S. military assistance to Israel? I mean, talking about the security establishment and what they think, he comes right out of the security establishment as a former IDF chief of staff. I think that Benny Gantz wants to maintain the strongest U.S.-Israel relationship possible. Not only was he chief of staff, he was also the IDF liaison in the Israeli embassy in D.C. You know, he knows this relationship very well. And whatever his feelings are about security assistance itself, I don't think that he would put himself in a position where he is undertaking a policy that would cause such friction with the U.S., which annexation would absolutely do. Yeah, I, I think I think that's correct. I, I think that he's been pretty circumspect about his own positions, but it's hard to see him being quite as combative as Netanyahu has been or as any of Netanyahu's colleagues to the right and potential replacements down the line may seek to be. And, and if anything, I think Gantz will be willing to at least toe the line, even if he's not actively advocating on two states or on an immediate end to the occupation of the West Bank, he's not going to do anything to provoke the United States in that situation. And that way will probably make things easy for a Democratic president. Although, again, bringing this conditioning aid conversation into the mainstream may only move the benchmarks for people further to the left within the Democratic Party, and that could change the parameters of the conversation altogether. So at least from my perspective, it's hard to predict the goalposts being moved back to where they were before this happened. Sure. And if I were the Israeli government, I would want this to go away as soon as possible. Because you're right, once it you know is released into the bloodstream, which I think it now has been, Folks on the farther left are absolutely going to pick it up and talk about cutting off all aid to Israel or talk about conditioning aid to Israel immediately as opposed to in response to any further actions. There, there will be lots of directions in which this is taken that will look far more damaging to Israel than the way things look right now. So if I were the Israelis, I would want to be cutting this off at the pass as quickly as possible. I'll just ask one more question uh, directed towards all three of you. If Benjamin Netanyahu is no longer prime minister of Israel, how realistic do we think this conversation continuing? How realistic do we think that is? I mean, obviously, you could have a prime minister that's more right wing than Netanyahu. But I don't know if you'd have a, a prime minister that's so particularly partisan especially in when it comes to American politics, with just aligning themselves uh, with the Republicans throughout his political career, but more significantly during the Obama administration with the signing of the JCPOA. How does Netanyahu out of the picture change this conversation? I think that Democrats obviously don't like Netanyahu on policy, but they really, really don't like him on politics. They view him as having interfered in U.S. politics 
multiple times. They view him as having disrespected President Obama. They view him as being a surrogate of President Trump. They really, really don't like him. So I think that having anybody else as prime minister, whether it's Benny Gantz or whether it's someone who's even more right-wing than, than Netanyahu, someone like Gideon Saar, I think that the relationship with Democrats in the short and medium term will improve right away. But ultimately, no viable candidate for prime minister exists at the moment who is going to return Israel to Oslo policies. Benny Gantz is likely to not do a whole bunch of inflammatory things in the West Bank. But the prospects of him entering into real negotiations with the Palestinians are, are pretty slim. And he's not going to freeze all settlement construction. And he's not going to, certainly he's not going to withdraw settlements or troops from the West Bank, as, as he shouldn't. So, you know, over time, the friction on policy is still going to remain. The question is, how high that level of friction has to be. And I think that it doesn't have to be nearly as high as it's been. And to what extent this is driven not by policy, but by politics. And I think that probably over 50% of this has been driven by the politics and the personalities involved as opposed to Israeli policy. Yeah, I agree. I think that, as Michael said, in immediately following a Netanyahu reign, there will be an improved relationship, but there's been such frustration, I think, especially among the Democrats with this kind of policy happening in Israel. And like Michael said, that it's a lot has to do with politics versus policy. So I think it'll be in like an instant relief once Netanyahu's o like is over. But I guess we just have to wait and see in terms of who's next and what they will do next, how the U.S. will respond to that. Just thinking in terms of a pers of a perspective Prime Minister Gantz, because at least in the immediate term, in the next couple of weeks, that seems to be the most likely of a bunch of unlikely alternatives. And even Gantz does not have a clear path to forming a government. I think that you're all correct, again, that there would be some kind of immediate easing after Netanyahu leaves office. I mean, the way that Netanyahu has treated relationships with people and with administrations that he doesn't like has been just so combative and in many ways hostile that it's hard to see someone else imitating that kind of behavior. So even just that would make things better. But again, now that this has been released into the Democratic Party mainstream, and now that this is coming from a more centrist candidate, like Pete Buttigieg, I think it's going to be hard to dial back that scrutiny. And the people that care the most about this issue within the Democratic Party base, the people who are further to the left, regardless of how well informed they are about this, or regardless of whether what they're proposing is intelligent policy or feasible, there are also the people who are most likely to say that, that on substance, there's no difference between Gantz and Netanyahu. And I think that we will see a level of scrutiny applied to the next prime minister who is anywhere to the left of Netanyahu that I don't think would have been applied to a centrist or, or center-left Israeli prime minister in the past. And I think that's a product of the damage that took place under Netanyahu's tenure. And the more protracted Netanyahu's uh, stay in office becomes and the more 
he pulls out all the stops to hold on to the premiership, the more potential there is to only compound that damage. So I think that you'll have immediate relief, but the, the goalposts have changed. But I think that does it for this segment of our episode of Israel Policy Pod. So Michael, thank you for joining us. And I would also encourage everyone to check out Michael's column for the week, which is on our website, israelpolicyforum.org. And it's about this topic of conditioning USAID to Israel and how that's entered the presidential race. But before we sign off for the week, we have an important announcement about our biggest event of the year, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks on November 13th. And to learn more about this great opportunity to engage with Israel Policy Forum's work, I'm joined by my colleague, Samantha Pohl, who is our development director at Israel Policy Forum. So, Samantha, can you tell us a little more about this program? Sure. We are thrilled to be honoring three fantastic members of our community, Adina Phillips, John Resquet, and Jeffrey R. Solomon, who have in their own ways really paved the way for mobilizing support for our mission. And we are delighted to have just announced Democratic Union MK and former IDF Deputy Chief of Staff Major General Yair Golan as our keynote speaker. The event, as you mentioned, Evan, will be on Wednesday, November 13th in New York City at the Time Center at 6 p.m. And the program is going to be really unique. It's going to start with cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. We're going to move into our main program, conclude with a dessert reception. There'll be a young professionals after party for our IPF Atid members and beyond. So you can register at ipf.li forward slash NOV13 or find the link at our homepage at www.israelpolicyforum.org. It's going to be a great event. All of the proceeds for the benefit go to support programs just like this podcast and other fantastic resources on our website. So hope to see you at our event on November 13th. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you, Samantha. And again, really driving home that if you enjoy this podcast and other Israel Policy Forum programs, uh, we really depend on your support. So we hope to see you at our annual event on November 13th. And one more ask of you while we have our audience in front of us. If you enjoy this podcast, we would really appreciate if you leave us a review um, or rating on wherever you listen to this podcast that helps to make sure that we are bringing you the best content possible. And we always appreciate the feedback and we hope that you'll tune in next time. <laughs>